Nagovanen. Welcome to the Tolkien Lore Channel and the Tolkien Geek. And in this video, I want to give kind of a broad overview of all the different types of creatures and other things like that in Tolkien's Middle Earth universe, more broadly known as Arda. Arda is the name for the entire world of Middle Earth. Middle Earth is just the one continent where the action from The Hobbit and Lord of the Rings takes place, and also the Silmarillion, though the area in the Silmarillion is sunk by the time the Lord of the Rings comes around. So let's go ahead and get started, starting with the top down in terms of order of creatures. By top down, I mean starting with God and the angels, essentially. Uh, of course, they're never really called that in Tolkien's writings, but in the Silmarillion, the whole story starts with what is essentially the god figure, Eru Iluvatar, creating the Ainur, which translates to holy ones. So you start out with God essentially creating angels. The Ainur then, of course, make music in as a way of creating the world of Arda itself, and some of the Ainur then enter the world. Some of them become known as the Valar, which are the greater of the Ainur, and then the lesser Ainur that enter Middle-earth become known as Maiar. And most of those you don't really know anything about unless you read the Silmarillion itself, but the the Valar would include Manwe Sulimo, the Lord of Winds, who is the, the called the Elder King. He is the chief of the Valar in Middle-earth. Uh, there's, of course, Melkor Morgoth, who is the chief enemy in the Silmarillion. And you also have various Maiar, such as Melion, who is the mother of Luthien, who is the progenitor of uh, Arwen. And then you've got other Maiar as well. So there's a lot of different ones, and they kind of pop up a little bit in some of the other categories that I'll talk about as well. Uh, and the other significant examples of Maiar in the middle in the in the Lord of the Rings would be the wizards. So you've got Gandalf, Saruman, Radagast the Brown, and the two blue wizards, these are all Maiar, as is Sauron himself. They're all lesser angels, essentially, and so they're all kind of roughly on par. But that's the angelic realm, you might say, so let's move on to more earthly creatures. The first two categories to talk about when referring to the more earthly beings in Middle-earth would be elves and men. These are, of course, the children of Iluvatar in the overall mythology of the Silmarillion, created directly by Iluvatar and thus favored in some senses over everybody else. Elves and men are more or less the same with the key differences that elves are immortal, other than the fact that they can be killed in battle or die of sorrow, but they can't die of disease, they don't die of old age, anything like that. And in most of the descriptions, you tend to get the idea that they are roughly the same stature, but less bulky. They're, they're more lithe and nimble and less large in terms of muscular structure and that sort of thing, although they can still be quite strong. It's not a matter of strength so much as just bulk. So, I mean, you get descriptions in different places, and it depends on what stage of Tolkien's writings you look at that you get these different descriptions, but that's overall the most consistent idea. Um, elves, of course, are created first. They come on the scene first. Uh, they are the primary players in the Silmarillion, with the exception of 
the main story sagas of Baron and Turin and Tuor and Gondolin, but the Elvish campaign, so to speak, is the overall backdrop for those stories. The Silmarillion is all about basically what the elves are doing in Middle-earth. Of course, we all know a lot of the elves. There's Elrond, Galadriel, numerous elves in Middle-earth that we could talk about. Men come along later, and they are, of course, the mortals. They are also called uh, the aftercomers or the usurpers, and, and depending on <laughs> what tone you want to apply, because in some sense they kind of displace elves, and the elves realize this. So they're not usurpers in the sense that they're trying to be bad people so much as it's just kind of the natural order of things for men to take the place of elves and eventually that that is what happens all the elves leave middle earth and return to Valinor and those that don't leave middle earth fade into either very minuscule or very invisible creatures that nobody ever really sees so that's kind of their broad relationship but the more interesting things are, they come along a little bit later. So you've got hobbits, of course, in the Third Age of Middle-earth. As far as we know, they're only in the Third Age. And it's not really 100% clear from the Lord of the Rings what they are. Uh, they seem to be a different race in some ways, and yet they're also basically like long-lived, small-statured men. And in fact, there is a place in one of Tolkien's writings where he does indicate hobbits are just a branch of man. They are a different category of men. And I don't remember exactly where I found that reference. It might be in the Peoples of Middle-earth, which is volume 12 of the History of Middle-earth series. It might also be in one of his letters. I don't remember, and it would take forever to find it. But if somebody can point that out in the comments, I'd be grateful. Um, the other main... Uh, group that I want to put in this category, of course, is the dwarves, the other free peoples of Middle-earth. Dwarves were created by the Vala Aule, who is the smithy god. I mean, he's the, the smith, the artificer, uh, very much like Hephaestus in the Greek myth, and essentially he becomes impatient, waiting for elves and men to come on the scene, and so he creates the dwarves. Eru Iluvatar basically comes in and says, why are you doing that? You can't even really give them life. They're just automata. And he repents and is about to destroy his own creation when one of the dwarves that he's about to crush, you know, kind of backs away. And and Aule is confused because, as Iluvatar said, he couldn't give them life. And then Iluvatar basically says, because you repented and because I know your heart was in the right place, I'm basically going to grant your wish and these things will be given a life of their own, but they still have to wait until after the elves come on the scene, because the elves are going to be the firstborn. So they end up coming on the scene between elves and men, and there are seven different families of dwarves, and the ones that mostly Middle-earth is concerned with in The Lord of the Rings is Durin's folk. There are also other dwarves that play a more heavy role in the Silmarillion, but I'll get into those details in another video. So for now, that's the four main categories of peoples that I want to talk about for this section. Now let's move on to some more weird and interesting stuff. Another category that I probably should have really put in the previous section is the Ents. They are, of course, a free peoples. They're not really 
humanoid, and so they don't seem to really fit, but they also don't really fit in any other category either. And in some senses, they're a lot like dwarves, because the Silmarillion story is that when Aule creates his dwarves, his wife, Yavanna, who is worried about the fact that the dwarves are going to be cutting a lot of trees down for firewood for their, for their forges, uh, decides, well, I'm going to make sure the trees can fight back. And that is the apparent origin of the Ents in Middle-earth. So they kind of have a similar origin story. They're also a free people's type of group. And so, you know, it's hard to fit where they, you know, put them somewhere specific, but they, they're they more on the weird side, let's say, than elves, dwarves, men, and hobbits. So I figured I'd include them here. The other categories I want to talk about here are the orcs and trolls and things of that nature, because that's kind of moving towards the weird end as well. Orcs, of course, in the Silmarillion conception are a corrupted batch of elves that then get, basically Morgoth captures some elves before they ever get to Valinor on their original trip, corrupts them and then breeds them and turns them into twisted shapes. And it's, this is another thing, depending on which stage of Tolkien's writings, it's not clear exactly what the origin story is, but kind of the ending of his thought process seems to be along these lines because as Frodo says in The Lord of the Rings, the power that made the orcs, meaning Morgoth, couldn't create anything of its own, which is echoing that idea of Aule not being able to really create life for the dwarves. He can just kind of make robots. Uh, and so the idea there is he can only twist, destroy, you know, corrupt that which already is. And so the idea there is that he didn't create orcs, he just took something that already existed and, and twisted it into orcs. So depending on your where you read in Tolkien's writings, that may change, but that's kind of the main idea that we get. Trolls, just as orcs are a mockery and a twisting of elves, trolls are a mockery of the Ents. They're the same not build exactly, but the same idea of being really big, really tough, really strong, except trolls are essentially made out of mountain stones. So you kind of, it's never really made clear, but you kind of have to wonder if trolls really are a little more like automaton, uh, like the dwarves would have been had Iluvatar not intervened. It's not really clear, but you also never get the idea that trolls are terribly intelligent, except in some you know, in the in the Hobbit, which is a little bit different than the uh, story that you get in the Lord of the Rings, because at the time of the Hobbit, he wasn't really trying to connect it to the Silmarillion and other stuff. But again, that it kind of depends on what stage of writing you're looking at. So you've got all of those, and then you've got other things too that are, you know, more fantasy, traditional fantasy creatures like dragons and dragons are another creation, using that term loosely, of Morgoths in the First Age. And in this particular case, dragons are essentially just evil Maiar who end up in a, in a dragon form. A lot of the creatures that we think of, and this includes Balrogs too, uh, they end up, if, if they have intelligence and can speak, a lot of the time it's just a an evil spirit that is essentially kind of fashioned its own body, which of course the Ainur and the Maiar, the you know the Ainur broadly, Valar and Maiar could do. They could take on the forms of elves and men, 
and walk among them unknown. So clearly they can take on physical form. So basically dragons and Balrogs and all these other things are basically Maiar that have taken on some form that is just particularly destructive and whatever the purpose they're trying to accomplish is. Of course, the interesting thing about dragons is they fly and they're particularly known for their greed. Balrogs are essentially Morgoth's honor guard, you might say. I mean, they're, they're kind of his chief warriors, his most powerful warriors in the Silmarillion. And then a few of them survive when the Valar finally come and overthrow Morgoth entirely and make it into the Third Age. I mean, the one that we know about, of course, is the one in Moria, which basically, whenever Morgoth was overthrown, must have fled and hid away in the mountain for who knows how long until the dwarves finally delved deep enough and woke him up or uncovered him or who knows exactly how it happened, but he was basically just hiding out there trying to escape the wrath of the Valar. So there's a bunch of the more traditional fantasy stuff. Now let's go into some lesser known things that are a little more obscure in the Silmarillion and play less of a big role, but are still important to note. Now, a couple of other types of creatures that we do encounter in the Silmarillion are, in a sense, traditional fantasy, but they're used more often in horror, so I think they fit a little better here. There are references to vampires and werewolves. And again, these are probably best understood as Maiar who have taken on specific forms, because there aren't, there's no real indication that any kind of creatures were ever made by Iluvatar that are that kind of creature. So, I mean, you get, again, just the idea that a Maiar could, a Maya could take the form of a wolf that can transform into a man, that fits very well with the conception of the fact that Maiar can take on whatever form they want. So that seems to be the best explanation there. We really only run into that in the story of Baron and Luthien, where uh, Baron ends up disguising himself as a werewolf, and then Luthien ends up disguising herself as a vampire which can transform into a bat. So it's kind of a, it's interesting the fact that he kind of connects it to very much traditional ideas of these kind of creatures in, in horror stories and whatnot, even though he's creating a broader uh, mythology. But it, in some ways it also makes sense because he's building a mythology to explain kind of a lot of different things and what better way to explain werewolves and vampires than to say that there really were creatures like this way back in the day. That's why we have stories about them now. So that kind of makes sense in its own way. Now there's other things that are more of a horror nature that have no real connection to other traditional stories, such as the Watcher in the Water. And if you're not familiar with that term, what I'm referring to is the big tentacled creature at the doors of Moria that attacks the Fellowship just before they go into the mines. There's no real indication where this thing came from or what it is, and it's not really clear, you know, what where it came from. It You have to wonder if when Gandalf makes his reference to older and fouler things than orcs in the deep places of the world, he was thinking of something like this. He was probably also thinking of the Balrog, because he knows those exist. But you have to wonder what else he might know and whether he might have included that particular creature or something like it in his reference. So it's not really clear what it is. 
obviously it you get the impression that it seems kind of like an octopus or a squid and in the book there's no indication that you ever see anything beyond the tentacles you don't get like in the movie a visual of its face so beyond the fact that it has tentacles we don't really know anything about its form so it's impossible to say but it's interesting to note there's also other things that we don't know enough about to really pin down but we can guess so Tom Bombadil which I've talked about in another video and I'll link to that Tom Bombadil there's a lot of different theories out there about what Tom Bombadil actually is there's a theory that he's the embodiment of the music of the Ainur that created the world you could argue he's a Maya who's just been in Middle-earth forever you could argue a lot of different things some people would even suggest that maybe it's Iluvatar just kind of poking his own hand into his creation and, you know, doing things in it. But I really don't think that explanation fits very well because Bombadil doesn't seem like he's <laughs> he's the mastermind behind everything. He does have his limits. He does have boundaries, which wouldn't make sense if he's actually Iluvatar. So... There's a lot of different theories out there. None of them are perfect, and that's kind of the point, really, because Tolkien didn't want everything in Middle-earth to have a neat and tidy explanation. That's part of what makes the world so interesting, is there are things we don't know and can't know. So, leaving that aside, another one that is similar is Ungoliant. Ungoliant is a giant spider from which all the nasty spiders in The Hobbit and Lord of the Rings, Shelob, Mirkwood... Uh, come from and she is very clearly a spiritual type of entity in some sense she's not just a physical embodiment because she does have intelligence she can speak and that sort of thing she helps Morgoth to kill the two trees of Valinor and steal the Silmarils and whatnot and she is apparently strong enough to capture Morgoth in her own web which leads to the question is she another Vala who turned to the dark side, so to speak? Is she just a Maya? And at that point, Morgoth had rendered himself so, I don't want to say weak, because he never becomes weak, but the idea is that he disperses his power, and he does become quite a bit of a coward. Has he already done so much of that that he's not really capable of fighting back? Or It's not really clear. So Ungoliant could just be a Maya, but it's never explicitly stated exactly what she is. So it's, you never really know. So again, there's another one of those creatures that it's unclear who she is, where she's come from. The only thing we do know is that she's been there since the first age and well, technically before the first age, because the first age is measured by when the first sun rose and she was there before that. So she's primordial in some sense, but how long has she been there? When, did she come there? What was she doing? It's not really made clear. So there's a lot of interesting things going on there. So there's a lot of different creatures like that that have just, you know, we don't really know anything about them ultimately to know where to categorize them. And that's one of the interesting things, again, that makes Tolkien's world so open-ended. There's lots of stuff out there. So Let's go ahead and leave it there. There's obviously a lot more different creatures to talk about. There is a, uh, a book that is a, a full bestiary of every single different thing that enters into Tolkien's world. 
and I'll link to that in the description as well. But if you really want a lot of detail, that's the place to go. I just wanted to give a broad overview here. So that's a pretty broad overview of the different types of creatures that appear in Middle Earth. There are a whole lot of others we could talk about. We could talk about Shadowfax, who's obviously no common horse. We could talk about Huon, the Hound of Valinor, who helps Baron and Luthien in their quest to obtain a Silmaril, because he's obviously no common dog either. And even his evolution in Tolkien's writings shows, again, the kind of development of Tolkien's conception of what how these different creatures fit into his universe. So there's a lot of different things out there, and again, I do recommend that you check out the, the book that uh, I'll link to in the description that is a full-on bestiary of Tolkien's world because it does have a lot of interesting information and you can get a lot of condensed information that you don't have to therefore hunt down. You know, where did I find that one reference to vampires in the Silmarillion? You know, you can look at it in just one place, alphabetically organized, simple to find. So that'll do for now. If you like the video, please give it a like. Please also share it around. And, and if you want to learn more about Tolkien's world or <clears throat> stuff outside of Middle Earth, you can subscribe to the channel or you can follow me at JRRT Lore on Twitter. Until the next time, this is the Tolkien Geek signing out for the Tolkien Lore channel. Namadie.